What's up, everyone? This is episode number 95 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast. My Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Well, speaking of Twitter, some of you might have seen a tweet that I posted earlier this week where I mentioned that I've signed up for the eBay affiliate program. And I've mentioned before that there are costs that go into this show. I've been adamant that people will not pay to listen to the Wax Museum podcast, and I'm going to try and and hold firm to that. Um, And I'm not in any danger of of threatening that either. I'm never going to do that. Um, But without going into many details, I've fought for that. I've turned down opportunities that I didn't feel comfortable with on several occasions. I'm not going to pitch you a product or a company that I don't personally believe in. Um, At the same time, I'm always looking for solutions that are practical but not spammy. And there are several reasons why I elected to go with the eBay affiliate program. Number one, I think we're all familiar with eBay. Um, Number two, you're already going to be making purchases there anyway. So this will work very similar to the Fanatics link um, in that you can go to www.tinyurl.com slash WMPod. Once again, that's www.tinyurl.com slash WMPod. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow that click. So all I ask is if you do enjoy the show and you already shop on eBay, please consider doing that. It's a simple way to support what I'm doing. Um, But if multiple people do that, it can really go a long way. Okay, so after I got through setting all of that up, it it got me thinking. I had eBay on the mind, right? So I, I love eBay. I'll go into more detail later, but I love eBay. As we all know, though, there are some changes they could make that would make the platform exponentially better. So I ask you guys for a little help to identify those, and I'll run through some of those changes in my main segment. Uh, Before we get there, I have several other topics of interest lined up. Um, I'm going to start by talking about the return of the NBA and how that might affect cards, and then I want to share a couple of cards that came in the mail this week. All right, so let's start with what I think is the best present of this week, which is the return of the NBA regular season. Um, we had two games on Tuesday night, should be the Warriors and the Nets. They started things off, and then we had an all-Los Angeles matchup after that. Look, I always enjoy watching LeBron and Kawhi play. I don't want to take it for granted whenever those guys are on, but I was really excited to see Steph Curry and Kevin Durant back in action. Now, granted, it ended up being a pretty boring game, um, but I'm not going to complain. And uh, it seems like I wasn't the only person that was excited to see them back. And I thought Kevin Durant was undervalued for years. Um, And then his stuff shot up when he was out of all times. You know, when he was going through this whole rehab, he missed the whole season, Um, which is not what you would have expected in the past. But you know what? It's 2020, right? Weird things happen. Um, Well, some of his stuff appeared to have shot up even more with that game. And um, over the last couple years, I dragged my feet on picking up a Topps Chrome Durant rookie. I was afraid I missed the boat, but as some of you might remember, um, I was lucky enough to, one, find a bunch of unopened 07 Topps Chrome packs on eBay, and two, actually pull a Durant rookie in the last one. So um, that one's staying in the PC no matter what happens. 
with um, pricing because of the story behind it. And I collect rookies of legends. And I think he's already a top 20 NBA player of all time. I think it's we can pretty easily say that at this point. Um, I don't, however, feel the same way about Taylor Horton Tucker. And that's not a slight on Taylor Horton Tucker, right? That's kind of a high bar that I would have set for him. And I'm not saying that to discourage you from buying Taylor Horton Tucker cards if that's what you want to buy. Um, but the reason I mention that is because last weekend I set up at a card show and there were some people looking for his stuff still. And um, the guy that sat up next to me, I saw him sell a handful of Mosaic rookies. Um, I sold a, a Revolution Parallel for $4. You know, granted, I know that's not a lot of money and, and the Mosaic ones didn't sell for a lot either. But let's say you have some extras laying around and you do that multiple times, it really adds up. And it allows you to pick up something nice for your PC. Um, we saw it with the preseason and we're going to keep seeing that type of reactionary buying in the regular season. And I think a lot of people have that figured out by now, which brings up a very important question um, as we're heading into a steady stream of games in the near future. And I actually saw a collector named Stu post this question on social media this week. So I'm going to read what he wrote because I think it's worth addressing. So he posted, why do people buy cards during preseason? Do they not understand that during preseason, stars and players that primarily get minutes don't play? I'm scared for these people that are buying Kyle Guy and Taylor Horton Tucker cards. Okay, end quote. Now, let me preface all this by saying I don't know this guy. Um, I don't know anything about him. I don't know if he has history with some of the people in the replies, but it seemed like there were some people that really didn't appreciate the question because they said things like, um, if you are as smart as you think, you'd be selling them. Why should you care how people spend their money? Um, you should be selling to those guys buying Guy and Tucker. But, you know, in all reality, it is a good question. Actually, a friend and I were talking about it this weekend. Who's still buying this stuff after it shoots up? You know, what's the approach here? Um, you know, after all, there are humans involved in this market, and I suppose psychology comes into play a little bit. Um, well, someone in the comments said, get it hot before they get hotter. Someone else said, what if the Lakers do find a way to get Horton Tucker consistent minutes? Uh, and then finally, uh, the last reply said, you can't count either of those guys out. Still very affordable stuff. Low risk. Taylor Horton Tucker looked special and is on the best team in the league. I have been selling both of them and buying Taylor Horton Tuckers that I thought were a good buy. Um, long story short, looks like people are chasing the peak, which could be, um, a dangerous game at the same time. I, I'm kind of like the last guy that commented. I'm, I'm not going to, um, if I buy these cards, I'm not going to hold it long enough to treat it like a long-term investment. But if I see a cheap Horton Tucker or a Kyle guy at a show, and I think I can flip it without a lot of work, it's worth a try. Um, just know that we all make choices and a lot of people are going to get stuck with some real stinkers before all is said and done. Okay, uh, let's move on to this week's mail and some cards that I wouldn't mind getting stuck with. And I probably am stuck with, at least the first one, um, because the first one's a little comical. It is a graded 1999-2000 SPX rookie of Jeff Foster. Um, now, first off, look... 
I posted the card and somebody on my profile said, I don't even know who Jeff Foster is. Okay, I look, I get that he's not a big name player, but the guy was in the league for like a dozen years. Um, it's not like he was at the end of the bench either. The guy was putting up consistent minutes over a dozen years. But anyway, I picked this rookie up and uh, like I said, it's it's graded. Well, what's the grade you might ask? It's a PSA 8. And it's an old label at that, which means that someone probably sent this thing in around the same time they pulled it. Uh, the card itself is not rare. There are 3,500 copies, but I've never seen one slabbed. Um, in fact, there are only six copies graded with PSA. Four of them are PSA 8s, and the other two are 9s. And I've scratched my head in the past at people's attempts to use grading to bring a new level of scarcity to something that's not all that rare. Well, that's exactly what happened here, and this time, I ate it up, because there's not a lot of Jeff Foster cards out there. It's something different. Um, I can lean it up against my computer monitor. In fact, that's what I've done right now, and it makes me laugh. So I would say that that $1.25 plus shipping was well worth it. Uh, the second card that I want to talk about that I got in the mail is a nice little blast for the past from me. Uh, I'm not going to name it yet, though, because you need some context first. And I don't know if I've mentioned it on this show or another show, um, but I am softening a bit on my disgust for Paul George. Okay, you got you know I'm a Pacers fan, right? As some of you know, I'm really salty about his last season in Indiana and how his departure went down. And I'm probably a little irrational about it too. But that's you know that's part of fandom. So for several years, I just didn't buy any Paul George cards. I even steered away from some really cool uh, releases like the early Kaboom cards um, and 2016 Optic. Look, that 2016 Pacers team was a hot mess. I watched every game and I hated them. Um, but, you know, that's what I do. I subject myself to the teams that I don't like even. Well, this year, like a lot of other people in the hobby, I've had to do some major zagging. And as a result of that, I find myself going back to some of the early Panini sets that I either forgot about or I overlooked. So stuff like 2013 Prism Walmart Blue, um, Innovation, Pinnacle, and certain Court King sets. Well, guess what Pacer had really cool inserts in all of those sets? It wasn't George Hill. It was Paul George. So while Pandemic P really hasn't done anything to earn my favor back, nor does he need to, I've started picking up some of his stuff again. And you know what? I'm glad that I have. I probably wouldn't have done that in any other year in the hobby either. So I guess kudos to 2020. But this week I grabbed a, a patch or a quad patch from 2013-2014 Court Kings. And the set is called Two on Two. I actually grabbed two copies of this card because right after I bought the first one, a second one came up with better patches, which I didn't anticipate so now I have two of them. I have to figure out what I'm going to do if I, you know, if I hold both or if I sell the better patch. But anyway, the set's called Two on Two. It has a canvas-like surface, like a lot of Court King stuff does. On one side, it has Paul George and Roy Hibbert and their patches. On the other side, it has LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and their patches. And this pairing was very intentional because the two teams had a bit of history by that point. In 2012, the Pacer, the uh, Heat actually beat the Pacers in six games in the playoffs. And then in 2013, which was right before this set came out, 
the two teams went to seven games in the Eastern Conference Finals before the Heat eventually won, but it was a great series. No team won two straight games. They all alternated. Um, someone commented when I, I posted this card this week, someone said, you know, wouldn't it have been cool to have Danny Granger on the card instead of Roy Hibbert? Well, I, I definitely wouldn't be mad about that, but at the same time, um, I don't think it, it tells the history of that rivalry as much, even though Danny was, was a part, um, you know, he, he went toe to toe or tried to go toe to toe with LeBron at one point, but, um, Danny was injured a lot during that time frame, and Roy was a pretty big deal. This was the height of the verticality phase in the NBA. Um, some of you, maybe if you're new to watching NBA games, you might have even heard that brought back a little last year when Frank Vogel was named the Lakers coach. Um, he made this a thing in Indy, though, because he encouraged the wings to sort of funnel opponents into Hibbert at the rim where you know David West was there. He could body them a little bit. And then Roy would jump straight up, and it was a major obstacle. That's why they, they called it the verticality rule. As long as he's jumping straight up and not into somebody, that's not a foul. Um, so yes, Danny would have been cool, but I'm okay with Roy. And for all you Granger fans, if the Postal Service cooperates this week, which that's a big if, and I'm not complaining, I know they're super swamped, but if they cooperate, I might have something of his to talk about next week as well. So hopefully I do. All right. Before I move into my segment about eBay, I want to take a moment to tell you a little about Fanatics. As you guys know, there are costs that go into running a podcast, so I signed up for their affiliate program. Whether you want to buy a a Panini Phoenix NFL box set or some new NBA gear, there's a good chance Fanatics has it. So if you'd like to help support the show in this way, go to www.tinyurl.com slash WMPod and click the Fanatics logo at the top. Shop is planned, and the Wax Museum podcast gets a small commission in the process. It's a win-win. Once again, that's www.tinyurl.com slash WMPod. This is Slick Leonard. You're listening to the Wax Museum podcast. Boom, baby! Okay, as I mentioned in the intro, I want to take some time to talk about eBay today. I figure a lot of you are uh, similar to me in that you spend a lot of time on there. I'm constantly opening the app on my phone. I've got it pulled up on my computer. I have saved searches that update me via email. And that's how I built the majority of my collection. And I know a lot of people... Um, out there have searched for alternatives, but it's hard to find anything else that has the combination of product selection and ease of access. Uh, With that being said, though, there are some downsides to the platform. So earlier this week on social media, I wanted to hear from you guys. So I posed the question to anyone that follows the show. I got a lot of good responses. I said, if you could change any eBay policy, buying or selling, what would it be? Um, so first off, thank you to those of you that responded. Um, and I know that some other shows have probably talked about eBay on their platforms before. I don't, I don't have time to watch every show. I really don't watch a lot of other shows to be honest or, or listen to them. Um, the little that I've seen the talk kind of dealt around fees. So truth be told, yes, fees are annoying, but I'm not really going to talk a lot about that today because, I think people might be more receptive to fees if some of the other major issues of the platform were somehow resolved. 
it only makes sense that a safe, effective marketplace would have some costs or fees attached to it. Um, but if you're going to charge that seller, then at the same time, you need to do a better job of protecting them. And I'll go more into that in a moment here. So after reviewing all of your responses, I kind of condensed them down to five key areas. And I'd like to talk a bit about each one of them today. I think these are changes that would benefit both buyers and sellers, even if some of them appear to be more oriented for one or the other. So let's face it, a safer and more effective marketplace is better for everyone. Um, and I know I don't have a lot of leverage in the hobby world, but I plan to tag eBay on any post about this episode. And if you guys want to see some of these changes come to me, then maybe you would consider doing so as well. All right. I didn't try and rank these or determine which ones were more important than the others. Instead, I've ordered them in the sequence they appear in the whole eBay, um, the overall process from sign up to buying um, and then to post transaction. Okay, so um, number one, the first change that you guys called for revolves around the sign up process. And I'll be completely upfront here. I signed up for eBay 20 years ago, right? I'm sure some things have changed since then. I know I'm not sending cash or money orders in the mail anymore, although that I never got scammed doing that, surprisingly. But um, in 2020, I, I'm not sure what the sign-up process actually involves. So I went on eBay's website, right? That seems like the first place to go. Go straight to the source. And it said, to sign up for an eBay account, all you need is an email address. Once your account is set up, you can buy, sell, and enjoy all the benefits of being an eBay member. But then later on, they mentioned verifying your account with the email they send out. So I don't know what all is included there. Um, so I posed the question on Twitter. And someone said, all you need is your uh, email, name, phone number, and address. And then he also said, quote, I don't think they require bank info until you buy something, end quote. Um, so then I went to Blowout. I posed the question on Blowout. And someone said, you don't even need an account to buy on eBay anymore. I'm not sure how that would actually work. So um, long story short, you guys voice that you feel eBay should be a little more strict about who's signing up and also that they need to verify their address before they bid on anything. But I'm not sure if any of us that have been in this for a while and are going about things the honest way really know how people work around the system. And it's, it's probably not difficult, but it's not something you learn until you try it. So someone suggested I try signing up for another account, which I suppose is what a good investigative journalist would do, but I'm not planning to attach my IP address to a secondary account anytime soon. So if you know more about what the sign-up process entails, uh, feel free to put that in the comments on this episode. But I'm going to move on to number two. Okay, so number two, if given the option... Many of you claimed you would make it easier to view accurate, completed sales data. And the key word there, of course, is being accurate. And this is the one that I'm probably going to spend the most time on. Because when we say completed sales data, I would break that down into three different components. We have the ability to see best offer sales, the elimination of unpaid items, and the removal of returned items. So first off, we need to be able to see best offer sales. And yes, I know we can go to sites that already scrape that data like Sell the Peak or 130 Point or Card Snoop. I'm sure I'm forgetting some, but realistically, we shouldn't have to do that. Uh, what exactly is the rationale behind eBay hiding that information? 
Do they get any sort of kickback from the bigger sites that are scraping that information? I don't think eBay has ever disclosed that. Um, And we can come up with our own assumptions, but at the end of the day, they're just that, assumptions. And I know some people have said that it helps keep comps high and it promotes more high sales in the future. Yeah, but listing practices have changed a lot in the last year. What about that item that's listed as a 99 cent auction, but it now accepts offers and I offer $30 up front and the seller accepts? Doesn't that graphic show the 99 cents with a best offer accepted and a line marked through it still? Okay, I don't know. Uh, And while I'm talking about the best offer feature, I want to read one of the replies to my question real quick. Okay, so someone pointed out, all platforms make the buyer commit to purchase immediately upon sending offer. Only eBay gives 48 hours to pay and then four days to close an unpaid case after the loser doesn't pay. Very archaic in the industry. So I thought that was another excellent point. I I don't need to add anything there. They gave us the timeframes. Now, in addition to showing the best offer information, eBay would be wise, I think, to put forth the effort to weed out bad comps. For example, Tuesday night, some of you might have seen it. There were four Luca Prism PSA 10s at auction, and all four of them were won by zero feedback bidders. I think Lameem James even had a meme about it. Um, Now, technically, it could have been four buyers that were completely new to eBay, but the odds of that are slim to none. So we're left to assume that those auctions aren't going to be paid for, but we really won't know unless they're relisted. Um, If they're even relisted. Someone could sell to a zero feedback bidder to establish a comp, turn around and sell it in person at a card show the next day. It shouldn't be up to the users to sort that information out. And I know there are some pricing tools out there that are working to sort this stuff out as well. I think that's admirable, but they shouldn't have to sort that information out either. eBay, if something isn't paid for or if something gets relisted, create an algorithm that removes it from sales history. And I don't personally write algorithms, so there's probably a part of that that's easier said than done. But I've talked to a few people who claim it's very doable and it shouldn't be a problem for eBay. Um, And while I'm talking about comps as they relate to pricing tools, I'd like to mention that I'm a little disappointed in the lack of pushback we've seen against these bad comps from some of the bigger institutions in hobby. Um, For example, back in May, Someone sent me a link to a sports card investor video, um, which I was, you know, I'm not actively seeking that stuff out, but um, they, someone sent me this link. They said it's worth looking at. So I did. And in this video, he talked about shill bidding and manipulation and how it's a major problem uh, with eBay. And at first I thought, oh, wow, this could be, you know, really good for the hobby to have this information out there. But by the end, this video morphed into something along the lines of, if you purchase my tool, you can exclude some of this bad data. I'll be honest, I didn't like that approach one bit. It was a classic case of, let's really play up a problem so people really get worked up about it or people get really upset about it. And then let's, in the same instance, turn and present them with a solution or a a product or a service that will counter it. It was like an infomercial, right? Um, Because then later on, I see that there's some sort of partnership between him and eBay. And I don't know exactly what the extent is. I do know that they've sponsored every virtual convention or event to date. 
And my thinking is if you have that kind of relationship with eBay, why wouldn't you try and use that leverage to help fight the problem internally? Um, you know, help the hobby in that way. Um, you know, whatever. I was disappointed. Not that that means anything. But if I talked to him today, I would encourage him to try and go that route, if at all possible. Um, all right. So then finally on number two, the last thing, I think the last step to weeding out bad comps revolves around removing sales for items that are returned. There's not a lot to say there right now. They need to be removed from sales history. They're not true sales. Okay. So all of that was part of change number two that you guys would impose. The third change that you mentioned, or a lot of people mentioned, goes along with part of the previous one, and that would be punishing the non-payers. Um, now, before I spend a lot of time on this, I wanted to see what eBay themselves had to say about non-payers. So if you go to their help page, they have an entire link devoted to the unpaid item policy. I'm going to read part of that for you now. It says, unpaid items are considered a violation of our buying policies. All unpaid items are recorded on a buyer's account. Buyers who have excessive unpaid items or canceled transactions may have limits imposed or lose their buying privileges. That, that's incredibly vague. First off, it doesn't specify what excessive means. Is it two? Is it five? Is it ten? And I think after two strikes, buyers might have the opportunity to block bids, but most people don't have that in place. And then even, let's say we were to have a set number established for the definition of excessive, if they were to tell us, is it two, five, or ten, or, or even more, it says as a result that they may have limits imposed, but it's not guaranteed. Now, Look, punishment in any area of life is tough, right? Um, you guys, some of you are parents. I'm not. I just have cats. Um, but it gets way easier if you establish consistent parameters from the start. So even though I, I don't have parents, I do have cats, um, I am a teacher, right? I've said that before. So if I say to a kid, hey, if you disrupt my class enough, I might give you a referral. That's not going to be effective. And they're going to do everything they can to discover my limits or what's considered excessive for me because I didn't make it clear. So instead, I have to go in and I have to say, look, here's the deal. You interrupt me one time, verbal warning. Twice, I call your parent, I move your seat. Three times, you get a referral. Right? It's that simple. Um, it's very clear to them at that point and they don't, they don't test the limits so much. Well, eBay's given the verbal warning. I think it's time that they call some parents. Okay, uh, the fourth change that you guys said you'd like to see implemented calls for a review of the return policy. And as many of you know, no matter what setting you choose as a seller, eBay is going to make you accept returns. You can put no returns on the listing, but you really have no power to enforce it. It's a very pro-buyer market. Um, even PWCC has tried to enforce the no return thing. And to the best of my knowledge, they can't quite enforce it. Um, now, they might ban people from bidding again, but they still have to take the item back the first time. Um, now, I should have mentioned this earlier when it came to comps and transparency, but my bigger issue with PWCC right now is that they made all of their bidding private. I think that's horrible for the hobby. Um, I've had several people voice that to me as well. But anyway, that can wait for another day. Um, but before I go any further on return policies, 
Here's the condensed version of eBay's official policy. It says, if the item you received arrived damaged, doesn't match the listing description, or if it's the wrong item, you're covered under the eBay money-back guarantee. You can return it even if the seller uh, return policy says they don't accept returns. If you no longer want an item, you'll be able to see if the, in the listing if the seller offers returns, how long you have to request a return, and any other conditions. Well, the problem is people aren't usually going to come out and say, hey, I just don't want this. Um, now we've got people that, let's say they, they get a slab they don't want. Well, they'll look at it, okay, here's a small scuff, um, or they'll take anything they can to try and cover up for buyer's remorse. Remember all the Taylor Horton Tuckers I talked about in the intro? Well, what happens if he doesn't get any minutes in the first two weeks of the season? Those sellers are probably going to get some returns. And their cards are worth a lot less when they get them back. Even if they get the, you know, the card back in the same condition, well, now, you know, his, his stuff has already fallen. That's how reactionary stuff is right now. Um, so they're going to say that those photos didn't match or that you didn't disclose some damage. And it doesn't matter how many photos you've got. I would say almost 100% of the time, eBay is probably going to take the buyer's word on it. Um, now, I hear a lot of people talking about how PayPal gives you 180 days to file for a return. That's six months. Uh, with the recent changes between eBay and PayPal, I don't know how that's going to shape up exactly or if that's going to change or what that policy looks like right now in this moment. But if that's still going to be allowed, that's ridiculous. Hopefully, we can get some clarification on that soon. All right. Um, and then finally, number five. The last major change you guys called for, a lot of you said that sellers should be able to leave negative feedback. All right, so I stopped selling on eBay a while ago. I can't remember the last time I sold something on there. Um, I had no idea that sellers couldn't leave negative feedback. And, uh, you know, that seems crazy to me. So when someone replied that to my question the first time, I kind of waved it off thinking like, you know, does this person not understand the the policy. Uh, well, it turns out that that person was me because then three or four other people chimed in and said the same thing. And here's what one of those responses said. They said, I've been active on eBay since 1998. Back when you could leave negatives for buyers, there wasn't nearly the problem with strategic item return shenanigans. There may be no empirically provable um, causal correlation there, but I personally think there is one. The ban on negative buyer feedback presaged a wholesale out-of-whack shift by eBay to inflexible and myopic pro-buyerism. Many things need to be changed to regain a more appropriate buyer-seller balance, but I think the return um, to the option for negative buyer feedback is an important step in that overall restoration process. All right, there's a lot to um, digest there, but um, the key things were is things used to be different. Um, eBay is very pro-buyer now, and if they would loosen up on that a little bit and let you know the sellers give negative feedback, then we might see some of those shenanigans that are taking place and are getting out of control. We might see those come under control. So I agree with that. Um, I'm not going to just sit here and repeat what he said. I think this could be a fairly simple, straightforward change on eBay's part, but I'm not sure if we're going to see that take place anytime soon. Okay, so once again, um, I posed that question this week. What would you guys change? You let your voices be heard. 
Um, your five changes were once again as follows. One, a stricter sign-up process. Two, transparency of data. Three, punishment for non-payers. Four, a return, I'm sorry, a review of the return policy. And then five, sellers should be able to leave negative feedback. Okay, there you have it. Uh, Like I said earlier, I plan to tag eBay on social media this week and see if they're receptive to any of this. I don't think I have that kind of leverage, but maybe if you feel the same way, you could tag them as well. I think these are changes that would benefit us and them. Because really, I do want to see them do well. Okay, I like the platform. I don't want it to go anywhere. Uh, but I think these changes would be nice. So watch out for that on my Instagram, which is at Wax Museum Podcast, or my Twitter, which is at Wax Museum PC. For those of you that celebrate Christmas, maybe you're traveling, maybe um, it's Christmas Day, maybe it's afterward when you're listening to this, I want to close by saying Merry Christmas. I thought about using today's episode to talk about my top Rakeem Christmas or Aaron Holiday or Justin Holiday cards from my Pacers collection, but decided I probably shouldn't subject you to that. So whatever holidays you celebrate, I hope you have a great end to the week. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. Shop through one of my links and I'll get a small cut. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. Podcast.